0: When I got to Sixth Avenue roughly five and a half years ago, um, one of the things that I told the members of our congregation was that I felt sorry for them, that uh, in me they had a very young pastor, uh, young in age, young in pastoral experience, you know, I said, I I wish that what you had was not a a 31-year-old doofus, but like a 60-year-old seasoned veteran who had Walked the walk and talked the talk, and who had been down all of the hard roads and who had come out on the other side victorious. But what you get is me. So <laughs> help me be that kind of pastor. Well, uh, I'm I'm delighted to tell you this morning that our guest preacher Ed Moore is that pastor. He's uh, the man who has a man who's been pastoring for longer than I was alive at the point when I came to be your pastor. And he's walked down those roads and he's fought those battles. And by God's grace, he has come out. Uh, victorious and uh, I asked him here and 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 paid the money to fly him down here uh, and and all the above because uh, I so very much want you to hear what he has to say from God's word not because he is uh, anything special in himself but just because God's grace is obviously flowing through the conduit of his brokenness and so uh, Ed will you come up and lead us in the preaching of God's word
1: Thank you very much, and good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I have to bring you the Word of God this morning. Sean, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, I have known Sean since 2017. Uh, We have had a mini-competition between the two of us to see who can tell the least funny jokes, and uh, I finally have found someone who is less funny than I am. So... I think that is good. I think I think maybe the main difference between Sean and myself is that I know that I'm not funny. Um, in all seriousness, what a delight it is to know your pastor and the unique combination uh, that he has of uh, uh, an excessively uh, brilliant intellect and knowledge of the word and ability to process things and that coupled with uh, how tremendously down-to-earth he is, and what a great Christian he is, and how he cares for people. I told him last night that my goal in coming here was to minister to you, but I think what has happened has been the reverse, and that is that I have been the one that has been ministered to, and just seeing your pastor and the way that he interacts with his flock. But there is one thing uh, about uh, your pastor um, that is far better than him and that is his wife uh, and it has just been my delight to be in their home. Last night they had some guests over and as every guest would leave um, Amber would go out of her way to say I love you to the people that exited. I want to tell you I've been in the ministry for a very long time and um, I can attest to the fact that what the Apostle Paul says is correct. Uh, The greatest of these is love. And I've seen such a demonstration of love from uh, this woman. Uh, I am excessively uh, encouraged, Amber, by what I see in your home and in your ministry. And so I am honored to be here today. I'm thankful that you are giving me the opportunity to bring you the Word of God today. And I bring you greetings from North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens, New York City. Let me tell you a story about something which happened in New York City, and that is several years ago, I got my hair cut. Uh, As I'm getting my hair cut, my barber does not know a lot of English, but he understands enough That when I explained to him, sir, please, when you cut my hair, don't take too much off because I want to create the illusion that I have something left that I can move it around. Well, on this particular day, as he is cutting my hair, one of his friends came into the barber shop. Now get the picture. Uh, He's a very... Uh, kind and gregarious and chatty man and uh, certainly was glad to see his friend and so get the picture as he is cutting my hair I'm sitting in the chair and the mirror is in front of me his friend walks in and sits directly behind him and so as he is cutting my hair He is having a conversation with his friend behind him, not looking at my head at all. Just cutting, but not looking. And so I'm seeing it develop in front of me. And after it's over, I say to myself, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. What I needed at the end of that haircut was restoration, Uh, We're going to talk today on the subject of restoration, and not primarily about getting your hairline restored to what it previously was, but restoration where we need it the most and where we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. Uh, We live in a broken and a fallen world. Um, All of the king's horses and all of the king's men are very, very busy. Uh, we live in a world uh, that is fallen, even as Job said in fourteen one that man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And you know why we need restoration. You know why things are broken. It is because of sin. Romans chapter five verse twelve through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So we are living in this broken world where things get. Uh, broken, where things deteriorate, where people die. Entropy has an undefeated record. If you can replace a hip or a fender or a roof, you can make a good living. Why? Because we are living in a world where there is constant need of restoration. And as I said, where we need restoration the most is in our relationship with God. We are estranged from him. Well, I would like to illustrate the biblical doctrine of restoration today from a rather obscure passage of scripture in 2 Kings chapter 8. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at the first six verses, but before we get into those verses today, allow me please to pause for just a moment and lead us in another word of prayer. Father in heaven, I am dependent upon you this morning. I am always dependent upon you. But Lord God in heaven, I am especially dependent upon you this morning because I am speaking to these dear people, your people, about eternal truths. And so, Lord, I first want to acknowledge my lack of sufficiency for these things. And I want to acknowledge, Lord, your greatness and the greatness of your spirit the greatness of your word to accomplish your purposes in your people. And so, Lord, allow me, please, Lord, just to be plain, just to be simple, just to get to the point and just to magnify the glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I would ask, please, that you would do that which you alone can do, and that is to soften our hearts and to open our eyes. And, Lord, please, to bring about Restoration in our hearts through your glorious gospel. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. What I'm going to do is just work through this passage verse by verse and phrase by phrase, uh, and then we will take it apart and we will analyze it. But first, let's just look at what is going on in the passage. It says, Now Elisha. Who was Elisha? Well, Elisha was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible other than Elijah. Elisha is the one who came after Elijah. It says, now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored, that's our doctrine for today, restoration. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can. Why? Well, because or for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for 7 years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She she went with her household and sojourned or temporarily traveled in the land of the Philistines for 7 years. Who is the woman to whom Elisha is speaking here. She is known as the Shunammite woman. We run into her in 2 Kings chapter 4. She was a very benevolent and hospitable woman. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 4 that this woman knew that Elisha would frequently travel in his preaching through her region and so what she and her husband did is they built a room on the top of their house so that Elisha would have somewhere to stay and Elisha was very grateful he was very appreciative of this and so he went to the woman and he said you've done so much for me what can I do for you and the woman said you can't do a thing for me I have everything that I need I dwell among my people I don't need anything however The assistant of Elisha, a man by the name of Gehazi, said, I know what the woman needs. Uh, She's getting a little bit older, and her husband is already well-advanced in years. What they really would like is a child. And so Elisha goes to the Shunammite woman and says, A year from now, you're going to have a baby. Fade in, fade out. They have a son a year from then. The little boy starts to grow up, and one day he's out in the field working with his father. He begins to complain of a headache. He goes into the house, he crawls up on his mother's lap, and there he dies in his mother's arms. What does she do? She picks up the little boy, she carries him up the stairs into Elisha's room, and she lays him down on the bed. Now, Elisha was not there at the time. He was 16 miles away in Mount Carmel. So the woman saddles up and she goes over to Mount Carmel and she speaks with Elisha. Elisha, who probably was not really fleet of foot at that time, says to his assistant, Gehazi, Are we going to take my staff? I'm going to go back to Shunem, We're going to go into the house. I want you to go up into this room and I want you to lay it across the boy. Don't talk to anybody on the way, just put my staff across the boy. And so Elisha and the Shunammite woman together make the 16-mile journey back to Shunamm from Mount Carmel. And when they arrive, Elisha goes into the room. And in what arguably was the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, the little boy is raised to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And so what Elisha does in chapter eight of Second Kings is he goes to the woman and says, Listen, you've got to get out of Dodge. There's a famine that's coming, and this famine is going to last for seven years. Now, let's put this into perspective. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine that lasted only three and a half years. Those That was in the days of Elijah. And during that famine, people were dying. Now, if you double the amount of the famine for seven years, there's no way that the woman could have stayed and survived. And why was the famine coming? Well, the famine was coming because of God's promise to bring covenant curses upon his people when they would sin. God was really clear about this with his people Israel. If you obey, it's going to rain, and there will be something to eat. If you disobey, it's going to stop raining, and there's going to be a famine. Well, there was a big famine that was coming. Elisha got word of it, and he says to the woman, I'm looking out for you. You need to get out of town. And so the woman goes away for seven years and she comes back. This is where we pick up our story in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 3, after she returns from the land of the Philistines. At the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Apparently what happened when she left is somebody took over her property, probably the government. Nothing ever changes. So she goes to the king and she wants her property back. She wants her house back. She wants her land back. And where do you go to get your property back? Well, you go and you speak to the king. When we get to verse 4, I can read the English words to you. I can tell you what it means. However... I cannot tell you why verse 4 is in the Bible. I will argue that it is one of the most bizarre, unusual, inexplicable verses in all the Bible. Notice what happens in verse 4. Now the king, the king was King Jehoram of the northern kingdom of Israel. He was a wicked king. He was a godless king. He was an idolatrous king. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi. Who was Gehazi? Gehazi was the former assistant of Elisha. But he is now no longer in the ministry. He is a defrocked clergyman. The reason that he's no longer in the ministry is because he is now a leper and the reason that he is a leper is because he tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman in 2nd Kings chapter 5 so you have this wicked king speaking with this defrocked clergyman why these two got together to have this conversation I'm not going to be able to give you the answer to that, but I believe that it happened because the Bible says that it happened. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, this is where it gets really bizarre, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. For some reason, this wicked king wakes up one morning and he says, you know what? I have a curiosity. I would like to know the great miracles that God has wrought through this man, Elisha. The reason that it is bizarre is not only because this king wanted nothing to do with God and because he himself was an idolater, but it is also bizarre because this king, on multiple occasions, actually with his own eyes, witnessed some of the miracles of Elisha, and it is also bizarre because this king, on multiple occasions, Tried to kill Elisha. So, why he wakes up one morning and has a curiosity about the miracle working power of God through the prophet Elisha, we don't have any idea. And the man to whom he is speaking, this is also really strange. He is speaking now to a man who is leprous, and he's speaking to a man that is no longer in the ministry. Watch what happens as we get to verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, if you understand this word while, then the rest of the passage will make perfect sense. If you miss this word, you miss the entire plot of the story. Verse 5, and while he, that is Gehazi, was telling the king, that is Jehoram, how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold Anytime you see the word behold, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Do you get the picture? One day the king says, I want to hear all the great miracle working Uh, powers of Elisha. So Gehazi starts telling the story and as he is telling the story at the same moment when he starts to talk about the dead being raised to life, the dead, the boy who had been dead but is now alive, walks into the presence of the king with his mother. Can you envision this? Can you see it in your mind's eye? Gehazi is summoned before the king. So let me see if I've got this right, king. You want me to tell you all of the great things that Elisha has done. Well, how much time do you have, king? I mean, because this guy was doing great things for God all over the place. When his predecessor, Elisha, Elijah was taken into heaven, Elijah's mantle fell and Elisha caught it. And king, I'm telling you, he used that mantle to split the Jordan River and he crossed over the Jordan River. When he got to the other side, he was in Jericho. When he got to Jericho, he couldn't drink the water because the water was bitter. I saw it with my own eyes, king. He took salt, put it in the water. The water was sweet. From there, he moved on to a place called Bethel. As he is walking, they are mocking him because he is bald. No offense. They're mocking him because he is bald. As these children, or young people, were mocking him, two she-bears come out of the woods and maul the 42 youths to death. There was another time, King, and you know it because you were there. We were going off on this military expedition, and as we were there, we were about to die of thirst. But what happened? Well without means of rain or without means of a river, water just appears. It quenches our thirst. It creates a mirage for our enemy, and we win the battle there. There was another time when there was guy, the guy was cooking some stew. There was poison in the stew. Elisha puts flour in the stew. It becomes edible. There's another time, we're down by the river Jordan, and there's a guy, he has a borrowed axe head. He's chopping down a tree. The Axe head, the iron axe head falls into the water. He walks over, waves a stick in front of it, it floats to the top. King, I'm telling you, there are so many miracles you wouldn't believe, but by far, by far, the greatest miracle that I ever saw performed is King, there was this boy, and he was laying out on a bed. And I'm telling you, King, he wasn't sick. He wasn't injured. He wasn't wounded. He was cold. He was dead. And Elisha walks in. He lays on top of the boy. He prays for the boy. The boy starts to sneeze. The boy sits up, and the boy is alive. King, I'm telling you, that was the. That's him. That's him. At the same exact time when he was telling, remember I told you about that word while, W-H-I-L-E, at the exact same time when he was telling the story of how the dead had come to life at that same exact moment, the woman and her son walk into the room. That is him. He is right there. The king perhaps is a little bit skeptical And so what does the king do in verse 6? And when the king asked the woman, the woman told him. He's asking for clarification. He's making sure that this is not choreographed. He he questions the woman, is this true? She told him. So what does the king do? Verse 6. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore, that's our word for the day, restoration, restore all that was hers together with the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, whoever's living in her house right now, get them out. The woman's moving back into her house. Not only is she getting that She is getting whatever would have grown on that land for the the last seven years till now. She is getting full and total restoration. Which begs the question, how did restoration come about? And I have a three-point outline for you this morning. First of all, I would like you to note that the glorious message of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence. The glorious message of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence. What is providence? Providence is that God is in absolute control of all things, that he is the one that is directing traffic. And and for purposes of our story, where do we see providence? I need you to figure out, okay, I need you to figure out the mathematical probability. All right, Grant, you're pretty good at math. I would like you to figure out the mathematical probability after 2,550 days of this woman being away, what are the mathematical chances that at the exact same time when Gehazi would be telling Jehoram about the woman that at that exact same moment that she would walk into the presence of the king. It's like a hundred to one. Or maybe the odds are even better. Maybe it's like a million to one. So you're telling me there's a chance. Listen, there we cannot calculate the mathematical. Probability. You cannot calculate this. Unless God is the one that is directing traffic, there's no chance that there would be a confluence of these two events. But God was the one directing traffic, and God is in control, and He does have the whole world in His hands. Or, as the abstract of principles says, Article 4. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, End quote. The Presbyterians say it much more succinctly. That is that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. If you want to spell it out, You can say that God has a lock on all things. He limits, orders, knows, uh, limits, orders, controls, and knows all things. You see, since God is the one directing traffic, that that man would have that conversation with that servant on that day, on that subject, and that at the exact moment when they would be talking about that woman that that woman at that same time would walk into that room god was the one directing traffic it's called providence and since providence exists you know what does not exist luck there is no such thing as luck for if luck exists then the god of the bible does not and so there is nothing that is random Young people will speak today about something that will happen and they will say, oh, that was so random. No, nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing is random. Another thing that young people like to say today is that when things work out and they work out well, they will say, oh, that was such a God thing. Well, all right, I won't argue with that. I would agree that indeed it is a God thing when things work out well, but would someone like to volunteer and tell me something that is not a God thing? A thing, by definition, is a God thing because God ordains everything that comes to pass. And so there's nothing random and nothing is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. Providence is a friend to restoration that as we are making our way through life, there are these confluences of people and events and feelings and and different uh, uh, happenings that happen, which come together and bring about good. Let me give you an example of where Providence was a friend to Restoration. Several years ago, I had a friend, and I had been witnessing to him for years. i have been trying to bring the gospel to him for many, many years. And it was very challenging, and here are some of the reasons why it was challenging. First of all, it was challenging because he came from a science background, and he was raised to be an atheist. Secondly, he was from a Jewish background, and he knew nothing about Jesus Christ and what he knew about Jesus He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Number three, he was homeless, and it was tough to find him sometimes. And number four, he was a heroin addict. So I would witness to him over the years. I only ever got him to go to church with me one time. Uh, he did not live in New York. He lived in another state. But I would I would frequently come in touch with this man. I would talk to him on the phone all the time. We were actually very good friends. And there was a period of time where we lost touch with one another. And uh, I would try to call him, and there would be no answer. And about two months later, he called me up, and he said, you're not going to believe what's happened to me. He said I was homeless. I was out walking around one night. I was strung out. I walked out into the road. I was hit by a car. I messed up my leg very badly. And for the last two months, I have been in the hospital. He said, but there was this nurse who was taking care of me. And she was very kind and um, uh, very nice to me. As it turned out, when he went into the hospital, the clothes that he was wearing he couldn't re- they really couldn't keep them. They had to throw them away. So for two months, he's in his hospital gown. After he has his surgery, after he is cleaned up, he is released, but he doesn't have any clothes to wear. This nurse, who at the time was not a Christian, but was a very kind and compassionate person, went to one of her mother's friends and said, listen, Chris, You're roughly the same size as this man. He has no clothes. Can you give me something so that he has something to wear when he leaves the hospital? Chris donates the clothes. As Providence would have it, this man was transferred to a rehab center which was 40 miles away from that hospital. Happened to be a town, however, where I knew several Christians. So I started a little group text to about 10 Christians and I said, listen, you don't know this man. He's a heroin addict, he's homeless, he's had knee surgery, he's in such and such a rehab center in your town. Would you please go visit him and love him and be nice to him and give him the gospel? A few minutes later, a woman that was on that text feed jumped in and said, I know this man. For the past two months, my daughter, who is not a Christian, has been taking care of him in the hospital. I know exactly who this man is. I will go visit him. A few seconds later, Chris, you remember Chris, the one that donated the clothes? He says... I'm on my way to the rehab center to visit him right now. I don't know him. I don't know what he looks like. I'll just walk in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. (laughs) Fade in, fade out, after several weeks, these people relentlessly shared the gospel with this man. And as God, in his good kindness, so often does... He saved this man. He came to believe the gospel. After he gave me his testimony of how he came to faith in Christ, here's what he said. He said, I could not shake. I could not get over. I could not get out of my mind. What were the mathematical probabilities of you knowing a nurse in one city that was 40 miles away from where the rehab center was and that, that God would arrange. And now he's, he's acknowledging the existence of God that all of these things would come together. That which opened his eyes to start to think about the existence of God and Jesus Christ being the Son of God was the divine providence of all of these elements working together. Friends, I want to tell you something today. You are where you are, not just in this room right now, but where you are in life right now. You are where you are by design. This is not random. Everything that has happened in your life up to this point has been an act of divine providence. You being here right now, divine providence, where you are going and who you will come in contact with and whatever will happen, it is by the design of God. And ultimately, God is going to use the confluence of people and events to bring about his purposes of restoration for his people. God uses... Providence. Point number two, God in his kind providence bringing about restoration uses pain, uses pain to restore his people. If I was to ask the question of the Shunammite woman, what was the most painful thing that you ever had to endure? Without question, she would say, the most painful thing I ever had to endure was the death of my son. I don't even want to think about it very long. I don't even want to concentrate on it very long. But can you imagine what she felt as she went from Shunem to Mount Carmel, 16 miles away, with a dead son. And then as she is returning, the pain that she is feeling as she has a dead son that is laying cold on a bed in her upper room. But if you follow the story, brothers and sisters, if it is not for the pain of her son dying, then her son doesn't come back to life. And if her son doesn't come back to life, when she walks into the presence of the king, at best, at best, it is an interruption But that which caused the king to actually notice her and to bring her restoration was the fact that she had a son who had been dead but is now alive. Do you see how pain was an integral part of and an ingredient which was necessary in bringing about the restoration of her house and her land? I know that you're hurting today. I don't know how you're hurting, but I do know that you are hurting. The reason I know that you're hurting is because you are a human being who's living in a fallen world. Maybe your pain today comes in the form of physical sickness, or maybe you are depressed. Have you ever been depressed? I have. I would rather have any physical sickness than to go through depression again. Maybe relationally things are very bad for you right now. Maybe you're having problems with your parents. Maybe you're having problems with your children. Maybe you don't know where the money is going to come from to pay your rent or your mortgage at the end of the month. Maybe there's a sadness that has come over you. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of those things. Probably it is a combination of those things. I want to tell you today, brothers and sisters, that the pain that you are feeling right now, it is not random. And God is going to use it to bring about good. Think about the story of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite, then he is not hated by his brothers. If he isn't hated by his brothers, then he doesn't... He doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. He doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. He doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. If he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, he doesn't go to prison. If he doesn't go to prison, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. If he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, then Pharaoh doesn't know that he can interpret dreams. And if he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dream during the seven years of plenty, they would spend all the produce of the land. And if they did that, then all the people of that region of the world would die. And if all the people of that region of the world die, then his family dies. And if his family dies, then his brother Judah dies. And if his brother Judah dies, there is no King David. And if there is no King David, there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, I'm going to hell and so are you. What did God use in order to bring about restoration for his elect? He used pain. And that's why Joseph can get to the end of his life and say to his brothers, Ah, you meant it for evil. Let's just stop right there. Evil is bad. Evil is painful. Joseph acknowledges you are bad guys and you did the wrong thing. However, that which you meant for evil, God meant for good, as it is this day to save many people alive. Now you can look at any aspect of the life of Joseph, and you can put on blinders. And if you put those blinders on, it is meaningless, right? Here I am in a prison. I am forgotten for two years for a crime that I did not even commit. What is going on? Well, if that's all you see, then it is meaningless and it is discouraging. However, brothers and sisters, when you take off the blinders and you get in your Romans 828 helicopter and you lift off and you see, aha, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. All things, even the death of her son, all things, even Joseph being hated and sold into slavery. God causes all things to work together of the good for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now I do not want to discount the pain that you are going through right now. I'm not standing in front of you saying the pain that you're feeling right now should not be hurting And the reason it should not be hurting is because ultimately it's going to bring about good. That is not what I'm saying right now at all. I know that pain hurts. By definition, pain hurts. We live in a fallen world where there is pain, and pain does hurt, and I am sympathetic toward your pain. I'm not here to tell you today that your pain is not hurting. What I am here to do today is to tell you your pain is not meaningless. Your pain is not random. Your pain is not outside of the providence of God. And your pain is going to be used to ultimately bring glory to God. And your pain will be used to bring good for yourself. Can you please consider with me the greatest expression of pain that the world has ever known? For six hours, an innocent man is hanging on a cross. The pain that he endured prior to going to that cross, the, 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 the crown of thorns that is crushed into his skull, the mockery, his beard being jerked out, him being spat upon, the weakness that overcame his body where he could not even carry the cross up the hill, And then he gets there to the cross, and he is nailed to the cross, and he becomes a curse. It's not now just the physical pain that is in his body. And indeed, he did bear in his body our sins upon the tree. But it is the pollution of our sin that is upon him. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. We have never known pain like this. The world will never know pain like this. And for six hours, God hammers his son to death upon the cross. And Jesus cries out, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' Your salvation doesn't just have pain as a part of it, but your salvation from beginning to end is pain, that Jesus Christ took your pain upon the cross. But I want to tell you that if Jesus had not taken your sins upon himself, you would never experience restoration in this life or in the life to come. And so, what is it that you're going through right now? I don't know. But you know, but more importantly, he knows. And he says, cast all of your cares upon me, for I care for you. The pain that you're going through right now. And Listen, I am not smart enough to know how the story ends. I, I, can't play, I can't play it out for you and say, ah, please just relax your pain right now is going to precipitate this or that. I don't know what it's going to do. I just know that God is in control and that he does cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and those who are the called according to his purpose. And so I want you to be encouraged today. I'm not saying to you, please try to have your pain stop hurting. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, please get a bigger vision. I don't think there's any way that that woman knew when she was carrying that dead boy in her arms, that that ultimately would be what God would use in order to restore her house and her land. I do not know how God is going to use the pain that you're going through right now. I just know that he is. Which brings us to our final point with respect to restoration. And that is power. How does God bring about restoration? It is through divine power. And what is the power? It is specifically the power of a risen son. Do you see the power of the risen son in the story? Our glorious message of restoration is accomplished with a demonstration of divine power, the power of a risen son. You see, the reason why the king was willing to restore the property to this woman is because her son, who had been dead, was now alive, and that son was standing beside her. If the woman walked into the king's presence, and she needed restoration, and the king said, who are you? And she said, "Your, your majesty, I am a Shunammite woman. And I want you to know I'm a good woman. I'm a benevolent woman. I'm a charitable woman. I'm a generous woman. I built a room so that the prophet would have somewhere to sleep. The king would have looked to her and said, Ma'am, that's very admirable, but things are tough all over. We just had a seven-year drought. I can't help you. But that which caught the eye of the king, that which caused the king to know that there was something special was that this woman had a son who had been dead but is now alive. So follow the argument with me from the lesser to the greater. That is, if a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not even know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, but a boy who would eventually die permanently, does it not then stand to reason that a good, loving, intentional Eternal God will not grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification, a son which had been dead but is now alive and will be alive forevermore. In other words, the gospel is of first importance. You are ultimately going to receive restoration. And the reason, the one and only reason that that is going to come about is because you have a son standing beside you who used to be dead but is now alive. In other words, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And God's going to look at you in the judgment But he ain't going to see you. He's going to look at that son that's standing beside you. That son who died for your sins. And that son who was raised for your justification. And he is going to say enter into the joy of the Lord. And that's why Paul will write. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the oomph. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so I will speak to you about this subjectively. And I will speak to you about this objectively. First of all, objectively, God is pleased with you. And God has forgiven you. And you have a sure standing before God above because you have a risen son at your side. Subjectively, I want you to take this gospel message out to the people of Decatur and to the people of Huntsville And I want you to take it with boldness. And I want you to take it with confidence. Because it doesn't really make any sense that someone who is disinterested in the church, disinterested in the Bible, someone who thinks that we are weird, and in fact we are, but they think that we are weirder than we really are, wanting nothing to do with the things of God, hearing a message, a message about a man that lived 2,000 years ago that was dead but came back to life, and then all of a sudden, mysteriously, strangely, miraculously, this person who does not have a disposition toward the things of God all of a sudden has a soft heart. And then they become interested in the things of God. And then they love Jesus Christ. And then they love the people of God. And then they love the church. How does one's heart get transformed from being either an antagonist or completely bored or a skeptic to the point where they love Jesus Christ? They hear someone like you tell them that there was a son who died but is now alive. It is the power of God unto salvation and so brothers and sisters we are in the business of being ministers of reconciliation and going out to a lost and dying world and helping these people who are in desperate need of salvation we have the remedy for restoration and it is found in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ so number one Are you saved? Has this power come to you? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for your restoration, for your forgiveness? I see a number of young people in the room right now. Children, please listen to me. Young people, teenagers, listen to me. Do you know this Jesus? Has he restored you? Has he forgiven you? You're not too young to be saved. You can call upon Jesus and be saved. You can be restored, fully made right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ. And not just young people, but if someone has come in today and you don't know Christ, I want to tell you today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. He lives to make intercession for us. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He is your advocate before God he is your mediator go to Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised again then I would say to those of you that need restoration in your life you already know the Lord but things are not going so well right now I want you to know that the things that are happening are the things that are happening and they're happening for a reason God's divine providence And even though this is a season of pain for you, and I sympathize with you, and I empathize with you, I want you to know that that pain is not meaningless. But God will use that pain for your good and for his glory. And I want you all to know that we possess the message of great power. And that power is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so cry out to him and lean on him. And look to him. Providence and pain and power bring about restoration. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we've had today in your word. I pray for these dear people, Lord. I pray for the ones that are hurting. Lord, I pray for the ones that know you not. I pray, Lord, that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and that they would call out to you. Lord, please help these dear people.